Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series. And I kind of just give you an introduction of this series. Um, and I just, I don't know, kind of like a fun, maybe not a fun fact, but a fun, maybe categorized as a fun biblical fact. But all the billions of humans, if you think about it, like all the billions of humans who have ever or will ever live on this planet can be really summed up into two men. Adam and Jesus Christ. Like according to the scripture, all the billions of people who have ever and will ever lived can be summed up in two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, right? All of redemptive history, all of salvation history finds its meaning in Adam and in Christ. Sin, condemnation, and death along with righteousness, justification, and life cannot be rightly understood without Adam and Christ in mind. In fact, from God's perspective, no other human being counts. Now, you may be here today, you may not believe the Bible, but I want to tell you what the Bible teaches. All of humanity including everyone sitting in this room today, are either in Adam or in Christ. To know these two men is to know the story that God has called all believers to know and to tell. So we're going to spend the next seven weeks on this squeaky stage <laughs> I'm just, every time I step, it just reminded how much weight I put on. <laughs> so we're going to take the next seven weeks recalling the creation story and contrasting Adam and Jesus Christ in a series that we've entitled The Last Adam. The Last Adam. Now, before we dive into today's text, I want to share my prayer, what my prayer has been for all of us on this seven-week journey. I want to share this prayer with you, and then I want to pray this prayer out loud, amen? And so this has kind of been, as I've been putting together this series, and I've been thinking about all who will be here in the next seven weeks, this has been my prayer. Number one, I'm praying that this series would radically enhance our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I be honest? We got a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but are a little uncertain about what the gospel is. And so I am just praying that as we take the journey of gospel connection, as we preach this series on the last Adam, that all of us would have a radically enhanced understanding of the gospel. I'm also praying that this series would exponentially increase your appreciation for Jesus. I'm praying that the word of God, the truth of God, and the love of God would well up in your heart so much that 
that the overflow of your life would be worship and adoration and wonder and appreciation for Jesus Christ. Like, that's my prayer. And finally, I'm praying that this series would move some of you. And I don't just mean your body. I'm praying that this series would move your spirit and that many of you who are in Adam right now would be moved into Christ permanently. That's my prayer. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak. Holy Spirit, illuminate the text. Take my words and your words and use them to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ in every heart, mind, and soul in this room. Lord, I pray that this series would radically enhance our understanding of the gospel. I pray that this series would exponentially increase our appreciation for Jesus. And I pray this series would move many out of Adam and into Jesus Christ. I pray that you would get all honor and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I've entitled today's kind of introductory sermon, uh, Two Men, Two Men. I know, not very creative. Um, but I just thought since all of humanity hinges upon these two men, and one day you and I are going to stand before God, and our eternity is going to hinge on these two men, I just thought it would be appropriate to start this series that we're calling Last Adam with a sermon entitled Two Men. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open to Romans chapter 5, and we are going to read verses 12 through 19. Romans chapter 5, verses 12. 12 through 19. I'm going to read that together. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, we'll have it for you up here on the screen as well. But if you want to follow along, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Again, we are looking at Jesus and Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 19. And the scripture reads like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not, not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. 
For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Man, this is wordy and this is dense. And if you actually look at the particular scripture, you'll see Paul like open up in verse 12 and then he'll go off on a tangent in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And it's not till verse 18 where he'll pick it all back up again. Like Paul reminds me of myself. Like sometimes I go on these wild tangents and people are a little lost and you kind of have to bring it all back together. So if I had to summarize this dense text, and we can leave it for you guys on the screen. If I had to summarize this dense text to you, I would summarize it in two key verses. And, And it's highlighted for you here on the passage. The first is verse 12 that says this therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned and then the second text will be found in verse 18 where Paul picks it back up therefore as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men two men Adam and Jesus Christ. That's our focus this morning. The one man, Adam, and the one man, Jesus Christ. How y'all doing? Amen. And so I want to talk about the one man, Adam, for a moment. Though sin originated with Satan, y'all know that, right? Like sin didn't originate with Adam. It was Satan who fell from heaven. And so though sin originated with Satan, when it came to God's good creation, Paul reminds us that it was Adam who opened the door and let sin in. Y'all hear me? And so though sin started or sin originated with Satan, Paul reminds us that it was Adam who opened the door and allowed sin to come in. You have to remember the creation story. It was Adam, if you remember, who was given dominion over every living and creeping thing. It was Adam who was placed in the garden by God to tend it and to guard it. And it was Adam who failed. And when the snake crept into the garden that Adam was called to guard, it was Adam who failed to take dominion over the snake. It was Adam who fell into temptation and it was Adam who disobeyed God. Now, I want to pause for a moment because all this week, Adam's failure has been challenging me. And I want Adam's failure to challenge all of us. Let me ask you the question, what gardens has God called you to guard? If you're here this morning, what gardens has God called you to guard? And where might the snake be creeping around? speaking his lies and presenting his temptations in the same way that Adam opened the door for sin to enter in what doors might we be opening and we might need to close and it's got to start in us before it starts outside of us have you considered the gardens of your mind and your heart what gardens has God called you to guard Are you regularly renewing your mind with rhythms of the word? 
Are you regularly examining your heart with rhythms of repentance and prayer? Or are you finding yourself continually surrounded or surrendering to the fruit of lust? The fruit of doubt? The fruit of insecurity? The fruit of complacency? The fruit of laziness? The fruit of worry? The fruit of fear? How are the gardens of your mind and your heart? Or how about the gardens of your marriage? Or how about the gardens of your singleness? Marriages. Are you cultivating your gardens with patience? Grace? And Christ-like service? Or are you living selfishly or storing up bitterness? Singles, never want to forget about you. Are you learning to be satisfied in Christ alone? Or are you being driven by loneliness? Are you being driven by your need for approval? Or your desire for pleasure? What about the gardens of your home? What about the gardens? What about your children's gardens? Parents, do you know that you're responsible to tend and protect the yeah. garden of yeah. your children's yeah. heart? Yeah. I wonder what we are allowing to creep in, in the form of entertainment. What doors are we opening in our homes and on our devices? And how is it affecting not just our hearts and minds, but how is it affecting the hearts and minds of those that live with us? And can I just say this, a parental challenge. Are you covering your children in prayer? Like, I don't just mean like a random occasional prayer when you remember to pray over your food and you just mention, God protect my son and my daughter. But children, are you, parents, are you bombarding heaven in prayer? Like, are you pausing to pray? Like, are you calling your children's names out in prayer? Like, are you creating space and time to intercede on your child's behalf? If they're too young to leave the home, are you praying that when that time comes and they leave, that God would be with them and for them and that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And if they are old enough to leave the home and come back, are you praying every time they go and every time they come? Can I just tell you a secret? Maybe it's not a secret. Nobody's praying for your kids like you'll pray for your kids. Nobody will pray for your kids like you pray for your kids. So if you're not praying for your kids, nobody's praying for them. I'm a product of the prayer of my parents and the grace of Jesus Christ. Like, what gardens has God called you to guard? But after saying all that, I don't think it takes a genius to recognize that we fail. I'm sure some of you feel beat up right now as I've just made a list of all the gardens that you are not guarding. Because we are failures. Like we walk in the line of Adam. And just like Adam failed to protect the garden that God 
gave to him. Many of us, all of us, find ourselves failing to protect the gardens of our lives. But I want to challenge you maybe at some point in prayer this week. Jot a note. Put a reminder on your phone. At some point this week, would you consider... Would you consider processing in prayer with the Lord about the gardens God has called you to guard? Sometime this week, would you just take a long walk and just take note? What are the gardens that you have called me to guard and how am I guarding and keeping and tending and cultivating these gardens? I want to get back to the text. Because Adam failed... Every human in history, except Jesus, has been corrupted by sin. And every human in history, except for Enoch and Elijah, has suffered or will suffer death as a consequence of Adam's sin. That's what the text is saying. The text is saying, as a consequence of Adam's sin, all sin and all die. So Paul, thank you very much, Adam. So Paul labors in this section of Romans 5 to answer the question, how? Like, how is it possible for one man to affect many men? How is it even fair? Anybody feel that way? How is it even fair that the entire human race will be punished for the consequences of one man's mistake? And if you're just prideful enough, you probably say, well, that was me. No, I'm thankful it wasn't you. And every day we wake up and we eat of the fruit of disobedience, we prove, thank God, it wasn't us. Now, there are many different approaches to try to explain this particular portion of text that is ultimately saying that in Adam, all of us sinned. Now, some just avoid the question altogether because they don't even believe in a real Adam and Eve. This is a parable it's, it's mythological. It's a fable. They see Adam and Eve as mythical symbols meant to teach us moral lessons about mankind. And maybe there are some in this room who think that that's what this is about. And so as a result, there's no need for them to, to wrestle with this text. There's no need for them to have to answer these difficult questions because the whole story of Genesis and creation is just a myth. In fact, they don't have to explain a talking snake like I did a couple of weeks ago when I sat with somebody. He's like, so tell me, you believe in a talking snake? Like if we just believed it was a fable or a parable with with a good moral lesson, there's no need to wrestle with the tensions of the text. Are you with me? But if you dismiss this text, if you dismiss the creation story, it's just a myth, it's just a fairy tale, it's just a fable, then you really give no real explanation for the presence of sin and death. You have no explanation, no grounds to explain how in the world sin and death have come into this world. And I mean, there's a lot of us, uh, sometimes the best strategy, we just avoid hard stuff. Now for others, Adam is just a real life bad example, (laughs) right? So they believe in a historical Adam and Eve, and they just believe that he's like a really, really bad example for you and I not to follow. And in fact, they believe that everyone who was born, and and I'm going to get a little dense here, so stay with me. They believe that everyone who was born is born in a state of kind of moral neutrality, 
and that you actually, as you grow up, you have the power to choose to sin or not to sin. Right? So there's one camp that's like, well, we don't have to explain anything because it's all fairy tale. And then there's another camp that says Adam was real, but he's a bad example. And that I have the power, I was born with kind of moral neutrality, and so I have the power to shape and determine and choose whether to sin or not to sin. Are you with me? But this is simply not what the Bible teaches. In fact, here's what Paul is teaching in Romans 5. Paul teaches us that when God placed Adam in the garden, he placed Adam there as our representative. Like the Bible teaches us that Adam and Eve were historical uh, uh, figures. They were figures in history, real. In fact, you'll find Adam in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew. Paul teaches us that when God placed Adam in the garden, that he placed Adam there to represent all of humanity. Like, like a senator representing an entire state. Or, or, or like a coach making a decision on behalf of the entire team. Adam, as first created, stood as the head of the entire human race in the Garden of Eden. He was your representative and he was mine. And I want you to know, the, the deck was not stacked against him. He was in paradise. There was no sin he was given, in fact, the scripture says that God said, you can eat of every tree, just don't get that one. And if you're like me, you're probably like, well, let me look at that one. <laughs> like, I can have everything. He says, the, the scripture tells us in the garden there was plenty, there was much. And God said, look, I'm just going to test you on that tree, though. Will you trust me? Will you trust that I know what is right and wrong? Will you trust that I define what is good? Will you trust my word? And so the deck wasn't stacked against Adam. He was born without a sin nature. He was born sinless. In fact, there are only three people in the history of humanity ever born without a sin nature. That would be Adam, that would be Eve, and that would be Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look at the way Adam was created, it wasn't through a mother or a father. It was God himself breathing his breath into Adam. And if you look at Jesus' birth... It was Mary's womb, and she conceived when she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so the deck wasn't stacked against Adam. He was our perfect representative, perfectly set up to make a choice that would not be influenced by sin. Paul teaches that in the garden, Adam represented all of humanity. Adam stood his head for the entire human race. So when God tested Adam on a tree... Adam was tested on your behalf. And when, when, Adam, uh, uh, and when Satan tempted Adam to sin, Adam sinned on your behalf. And according to Paul, Adam's failure became your failure. And Adam's punishment became your punishment. And this is what we know theologically, we call it the original sin. So whenever you hear somebody say an original sin, it doesn't mean the first sin. It means the consequences of that first sin. And so let me, break, let me just, if for you theologians in the room, you could chill. But if you're not a theologian, let me break it down. When someone says original sin, the doctrine of original sin, this is what we believe. If you're a Christian in this room. This is what you believe. You're like, I don't know. Well, this is why we're preaching and teaching it. And you should go to Gospel Connects. I'm on one this morning. 
sweating up here too. These lights, this jacket. But this is what we believe as Christians. If you're a non-Christian, I'm so glad you're here. At the very least, you can sit down like, oh, that's what they believe. This is what we believe. We believe that original sin doesn't refer to the first sin. We believe that original sin is the consequence of the first sin. And there are two consequences from that first sin. And we learn it from the Apostle Paul here in Romans 5. The first consequence is that in Adam all sinned. And the second one is in Adam death reigned. Thanks, Adam. In Adam all sinned. Let, let me just break that first consequence down. What do you mean by all sinned? As representative, as head of the entire human race, Adam's guilt was passed down to you. Adam's guilt has been passed down to us. So sin, here's a really cool thing. Sin is not just something you do. Sin is a condition that we're born into. Mm, this is important. Like if you don't get anything else, this is what Christians believe. Adam represented us in the perfect garden. And on a tree, Adam was tested by God. And when Adam was tempted by Satan, no God tests, but he doesn't tempt. Satan tempted. But when Adam failed, it became our fail. Because he represented all of us. Therefore, original sin or the consequences of sin is that all of us are born into sin. Right? It's called a fallen nature. You know, a lot of people, they look at like serving Jesus, even the word serving Jesus, serving, serve, right? Or calling Jesus Lord, and master, right? These are all like symbolic. They're like, I'm enslaved. And so a lot of people think, well, when I'm not serving Jesus, I don't need no, I don't need no master. But here's the idea. You're born into sin. You have a fallen nature according to the scripture, which means if your master is not Jesus, you are a slave to sin. Like all of us are born with a proclivity to sin. Like we can't help ourselves, but choose to sin. As head, Adam's guilt was passed down to us. So sin is not just something we do. It's a condition. It's the condition of humanity. We are corrupted with sin. And as a result of that, the second consequence is because we are all sin in Adam, guess what? Death reigned. That's what Paul says. And I love that he used the word, well, I don't love that he used the word, but uh, it's fascinating that he used the word reign as if death is a king. Death is sovereign. Death is an authority on this earth. And I don't think we have to wrestle with that truth. I think all of us, Christian or non-Christian in this room, would agree that death reigns, that death looms over all of us, that the shadow of death follows us, that around us people die, and that one day everyone in this room will die. One day there will be a room full of people, and you will be in a casket, and they will be remembering your name. And so... And so the Bible explains where, how, did, how does a Christian define, or how does a Christian explain where death came from? Death comes from sin. It's a consequence of sin. And because all sin in Adam, all die. This also explains the tragedy of infant death. Have you ever wondered about that? You know, babies don't commit actual sin. Y'all know that, right? 
Well, some of you are like, well, <laughs> my baby, you don't know my baby. <laughs> Just testing me. Right? But, but the idea is that there's no conscious awareness. And also folks with like, like mental capacities, like there's certain folks that they, they lack, oh man, you got me covered, Pastor. I see me sweating. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Pastor Roger. And so we don't see infants committing actual sin. They don't have a conscious awareness. But infants are guilty of original sin. And so this is how we will even explain the unfortunate tragedy of infants and babies dying. If death is a consequence of sin and all have sinned, then sin is not just a behavior or an action or a conscious awareness. It's a condition that all mankind is born into. You don't have to agree with this, but this is Christian doctrine. And I just kind of breathe a little bit, probably wipe my brow one more time. Thanks. For my guest, that's my mom. Somebody's like, who's that lady? Just, just saying whatever she wants to say to the pastor. It's my mom. It's my mom. It's my mom. Amen. Boy, edit that out of the podcast. Well, let's just take a pause because I think there's a lesson. There's an important lesson about sin that we can learn. Okay. Um, recently someone asked me, and anytime I said, everyone's probably hold their breath. There's a few people in here like, oh gosh, what are they going to say? Right? Sometimes I get the oddest questions and I invite them all because they're so fun. So some of you are like, well, I'm not going to ask. No, please ask me more. It's great. But recently someone asked me a really good question. They asked me like, um, are all sins counted the same? You ever thought about that? Oh, like that. Ooh. Right? I mean, are all sins counted the same? And, and, and for, for example, like, can you really compare like a little white lie, it's a little white lie, with like child abuse? Now, we know socially, like, those are not comparable. Like, we even punish folks differently for that. Like, there's jail time. But, but the question is, before God, I've been asked, like, are all sins counted the same? Such a great question. And I got sweaty palms when I'm trying to answer some of these questions because outside I'm trying to look like I know the answer. Inside I'm like, oh my gosh. Don't make God look dumb. Don't make God look dumb. You know what I mean? Like, don't, don't, you know. But yeah, and I know he's not dumb, but I'm just saying, don't, you don't do it. Don't be the, the person who's responsible for someone to be like, ah, that's a terrible answer. But let me, let me try to explain this lesson, okay? Are y'all with me? Yeah. Does, are all sins counted the same? Can I submit this to you? We, all of us, I think, tend to categorize sin. Right? I mean, let's take like child abuse and white. Let's take that off. Let's just think. We categorize sins. Like we're professional categorizers. And I think, well, at least I can speak for myself, that behind the categorization of sin is this desire of our wicked hearts to minimize or to excuse our sin so we can look at somebody else and say look at them look how bad they are look at the garbage that they're in look at where what y'all get what I'm saying some of y'all get that because that happens in your family all the time Come on. right some of you have been the, the butt of that 
Like, look at this person, you know, comparing children, comparing parents. And there's somebody in people in this room, you've been the black sheep. You know what it's feel like when people start categorizing sin. And some of you, this is the first time and maybe the last time you ever step into church because it feels like they categorize sin. Are you with me? And so I know I'm using a child abuser and a white lie, and that you guys are all probably like, yeah, that's different. But when I start talking about all your individual sins, we tend to categorize. Because if we can categorize, we can minimize. That's what self-righteousness is. That was the problem with the Pharisees. That's the problem with hypocrites. Although we're all hypocrites, if we're honest. In fact, if you don't go to church because all church are hypocrites, you're a hypocrite too. We're all hypocrites. We're just hypocrites coming to the feet of the one who's true and lovely and beautiful and who's washed us and we worship. But let me get back to this. Here's what I want to say. We categorize sin, right? So we can point to big sins. We can feel less guilty about our own sin. Look at her. Look at him. Look at the decisions they made. How dare you? How dare you? I dare all of us. You don't know. You don't know what they've been through. I'm not saying your childhood excuses. Like we will all stand before God and give account for our sin. But you don't you don't you judge because if you were put through, went through, experienced the same thing that that person, you might be there too. Wow. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Jesus. So we can point to big sins. We don't have to feel guilty about our sins, right? Now, here's my point, and I got to move on, and you guys are doing great. Yet, in the Garden of Eden, all it took was one bite from a piece of fruit. That with me? I mean, is that a big sin? Like, if you're thinking about types of behaviors, I don't know, a bite from a forbidden fruit, right? Like... But if you're thinking about sin, not sins, but sin, if you're thinking about sin, you understand that this is much bigger than just one bite. Listen, here's what's really interesting. Hear me out, because I promise you we're going to answer this question. In the garden, all it took was one bite from the forbidden fruit. One single act of disobedience, y'all, that led to the total corruption of creation and the total decay and death of every single human being who will ever, who has ever walked, the billions upon billions. All it took was one false step. One wrong bite, one single act of disobedience that all of us would see as small because we are categorizers. And that one act led to the total devastation of all creation, the total corruption of all mankind, and death for every single person in this room. How do you explain that? I want, you to, I want you to see, Paul doesn't refer to the devastation of different kinds of sins. He refers to the devastation of one sin. Like a drop of ketchup on a snow white wedding dress. One stain ruins it all. Listen, God is so infinitely holy. He is so 
incomprehensibly lovely. He is perfectly pure on an infinite level. Beyond our mind's ability to understand. He is without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is so infinitely holy that even one blemish on the white garment of his good creation needed to be washed clean by his own blood. Like, I don't see, and and if this idea offends you, then it's probably because you think too highly of yourself and too low of God. And if this problem offends you, then it's probably because your view of God's holiness is too small and your view of your own righteousness is too big. If you're having trouble grasping this truth, and I understand, but if you're having trouble this morning trying to grasp this truth, if you need to be reminded of this truth, then look no further than Eden and Calvary. Like if you want to know how good and great and grand and pure and perfect and lovely and holy and righteous is God. And if you want to know how low down, how terrible, how wrong, how bad, how evil and corrupt you are, look no further than two places, Eden and Calvary. Eden and Calvary. You see, in Eden on a tree, one trespass, one act of disobedience, one deviation from the word of God devastated creation and condemned humanity to death. Yet on Calvary, on a tree, one act of righteousness in that one man, Jesus Christ, brought justification and life to all who believe so Paul doesn't compare Adam and Jesus he contrasts them because though there are some things that are alike there are too many things that are different and verse 15 Paul tells us the free gift is not like the trespass in other words though we were all born into the sin of Adam we can now all be born again by faith into the righteousness of Christ Paul goes on to say in verse 16 and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin in other words though Adam's sin resulted in the condemnation of all humanity Christ's obedience resulted in the justification of all those who would believe and then Paul will write in verse 17 death reigned through one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ I wish we had a church that would begin to appreciate the splendor and righteousness of Christ. Like, if you got a revelation of what Christ has given you, if you got a revelation of what Christ has taken from you, you would gladly, willfully lay down your life. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Good, Lord. Thank you. We wouldn't have to be cheerleaders on Sunday morning. In other words, in Adam, death became a tyrant. Death became a sovereign king over humanity, reigning over creation. But in Christ, a new creation is formed where death no longer reigns. But there's the reign of eternal life. This is the gospel. And I'll invite the team to get ready to come up. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Like if I just could summarize the gospel and the good news, and I'm not going to do, uh, just based on this sermon, is that Jesus is greater than Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus yeah. is greater yeah. than Adam. Yeah. Thank you, God. Let me wipe my sweat. <laughs> you know, I was prepping for this message, and man, this prep took a long time. Uh, I was war- warring through this message. Sometimes sermon prep feels like, most of the time, feels like warfare. Warfare. So if you ever walk through the week and you just remember your pastor, remember praying when we sermon prep. It's war sometimes. And I don't, I'm not trying to get, you're like, oh, I feel bad for you, Pat. Just remember to pray. Yes, yes. Amen. But as I was prepping for this message, I realized that I made a mistake on our signage. And we have two pieces of signage outside. You'll see one where kind of the coffee and donuts are. It says, tell the story. And then you'll see on the signage, <clears throat> you'll see across the way, we have a resource center with some more signage on there. And you'll notice that at our resource center, the sign indicates the story of salvation in four chapters, right? So like our theme this year is to tell the story, know the story, to tell the story. Like we want to be people who not just love Jesus and know him, but we want to tell the world about him. And so in our efforts to help our people tell the story, like we've wanted to make it easy. And so really the entire scripture, all the Bible, the entire story of salvation really can be summed up in four chapters. Now I have it wrong on this signage and we don't have the budget to change it. So we're just going to take another offering. I'm kidding. (laughs) Pastor Andy's like, (laughs) that was for you and me, bro. We got to get another sign. (laughs) when you go out there you can look at the resource center and you can see the signage and you'll see like along the rim like on the border is the chapters right chapter one of salvation story is creation god created everything good and then you'll see on the signage chapter two fall man took what god created and messed it all up And then you'll see chapter three, redemption. God in Christ put on flesh, stepped into this corrupt world, uncorrupted, and laid his life down to wash us clean of both our actual sin and original sin, redemption. But here's where I made the mistake. Chapter four, I said restoration. You can look on there and you can see it says restoration. But I realized this week that restoration doesn't accurately depict what Christ has in store. Some of you are like, well, why? Look, Christ didn't come back just to like secure what Adam lost. Christ didn't come back just to give us what Adam gave away. 
That would mean that Christ and Adam are comparable. But you see, the last Adam is greater than the first Adam. And so what we have to look forward to in eternity is not a restoration of Eden, but a consummation of something greater than Eden. So to call this final chapter of history, when Christ comes back, restoration, is to limit my Jesus. To call the final chapter of history restoration is to assume that Jesus only came to recover what Adam lost. No, 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 no. The last Adam is so much more superior than the first Adam. Jesus is not going to restore us back to Eden. But he is going to restore us back to something beyond Eden. Greater than Eden. Are y'all with me? Jesus is coming to bring a paradise where there will be no more testing. Jesus is coming to bring a paradise where there will be no more tempting. A paradise where there will be no more snake. No more possibility to sin. A paradise where there will be a new body, a new nature, a new heaven, and a new earth. To say that Christ is coming to restore Eden is to miss that Christ is so much greater than Adam. We're not longing to get back to Eden. Christ is going to bring us to something greater. There'll be no snake. And you know, when God created Adam, I believe Augustine was in his theological debate with uh, uh, Plagius. Augustine said this, that God gave Adam or Adam had in creation the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. And in creation, Augustine also says that Adam had the ability to die and not to die. And that the tree was a test. And that had Adam obeyed, he would have stepped into greater glory. In fact, the chapters would have looked like this. Creation, obedience, consummation. But instead, Adam fell and death reigned. Are you with me? Yeah. And so Christ is not just going to bring back what Adam lost, but he's going to do something exponentially greater. Yeah. Yeah. The scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can comprehend and conceive what the Lord has in store for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we get ready to respond, I, there's one final note that I need to make that I think will end today's message in a way that I think will challenge you to consider your faith, to consider if you are in Adam or in Christ. This entire dense, complicated portion of scripture if I could summarize it into one word it would be this word imputation imputation is a 
theological word that derives from the Latin. And the Latin, in Latin, it simply means to be credited to your account. It's an accounting phrase in Latin. To impute means to credit something to your account. And so what we see about the beautiful, glorious, lovely gospel of Jesus Christ, according to scripture, there are three imputations. Number one, all of humanity has been credited Adam's sin. The sin of Adam and the guilt of Adam has been accredited to your account. The moment you were born, your account said corrupted by sin. That's imputation number one. Everyone in this room. Imputation number two though. On the cross, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you believe, when you believe on Christ Jesus, you impute your sin onto Christ. What an exchange. You mean I can exchange not just the original sin, but I can exchange the actual sin, my failures, my mistakes, like I, not just the accidental sins, but the sins you knew about, the sins you indulged in, the sins that you enjoy, the sins that you currently commit, the sins that you will commit. On the cross, if you believe, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the scripture says that all that sin that you committed is imputed, accredited to Christ's account. So that on the cross, Christ is slaughtered on your behalf. He is condemned. He is punished on your behalf. And he said, that's great, Pastor Phil. But that's two imputations. What's the third? Well, here's the thing is God is so infinitely holy. He's so infinitely lovely that one day you're going to stand before him. And even though you've given to Christ all of your sin, you have no righteousness to stand in. You have no good works to stand in. And so the third imputation is this. On the cross, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, not only did you credit to Christ's account every single sin you've ever committed, including the original sin that you were born with, but then Christ accredits to your account his infinitely perfect, pure righteousness. So that on the day of judgment, when you stand before God, he does not see your blemish, your stain, your wrinkle, but he sees the perfect purity of Jesus Christ. And so we worship him. We glorify him. We gather on Sunday. Like this isn't just a country club. Right? We serve. We lay down our lives. We know the story and we tell the story because it's a precious story. We love our Savior. And though we look at this world and it feels lost and corrupt. And though we look in the mirror and we see lostness and corrupt. On the cross, your sin was nailed. Your sin was punished. And when you put your faith in Jesus on the cross, he accredited to your account his perfect record of righteousness.
Now, if that doesn't move you, I got nothing else. As a pastor, I'm often trying to motivate people. Move. Get on mission. I, I got, we got nothing else. It's either the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Jesus, the hope of future. If that don't motivate you, I can't jump through any hoops. I can't tell you to pray 10 times, read the Bible. Like all of this is empty religious activity. There's no transformation. Unless you look and are motivated by the cross of Christ. So like when we say on Sunday morning, hey, good morning, we're a community that's being transformed by the gospel. It's not just like a Sunday morning cliche. I've gone over my time, and I don't want to keep you here too much longer, but can we, with those imputations in mind, I'm going to, I'm going to pray for you soon, but can we just take a moment and worship King Jesus? Now, it just feels like, let's get out of here on time, right? Like, I get that, but like, in light of the blood of Jesus, right? And I know some of you are like, don't use that on me, but just in light of that, can we as a body just worship King Jesus for a moment? And then we'll pray. Yeah. Let's give him glory for all that he's done and all that he will do. In Jesus' name. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.